and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Aisha Hazarika. The UK's vaccine rollout has been heralded as a success in pandemic policy, but not everyone is as enthusiastic as we all might wish. Vaccine confidence is routinely up to 20% lower in black and Asian and minority ethnic communities. Up to 72% of black people are unlikely to take the COVID vaccine, with Pakistani and Bangladeshi individuals the next most hesitant ethnic groups. And vaccine hesitancy is a matter of life or death. Black people and Pakistani and Bangladeshi men are nearly twice as likely to die from COVID than white people. The number of BAME patients in intensive care is three times that of their proportion of the population. And new research identifies ethnicity and socioeconomic deprivation as long COVID risk factors. To talk about this, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Salman Wakar, General Secretary of the British Islamic Medical Association and a practicing GP. He has also recently set up a COVID vaccination site in his local area. Hello, um, Salman. Um, how are you? And welcome to the Bunker Daily. Hi, Sher. Glad to be here. Thank you. So you're a passionate vocal advocate for vaccination and you had your own jab back in December. Beyond the the sore arm, how did you find it? It was absolutely fine. I mean, um, like most of us, I've had all my vaccines in childhood. And uh, as a medic, we also have to have regular vaccinations um, just to stay up to date with um, things like hepatitis and and. Um, and other diseases. And it was no different to that. Um, in fact, it was a lot quicker because I didn't have to wait around in the waiting room as I normally do. Um, a bit of a sore arm afterwards, but um, no, I didn't have any side effects afterwards. So I was very pleased with that. Brilliant. And you didn't feel that Bill Gates was controlling your mind straight afterwards or anything like that? <laughs> I, I wish. I wish. I, think I'd, I'd, I'd I know. I would, that would really help me if Bill Gates could control my mind. I think that's a... So, um, Sam, and tell us uh, and our listeners, what is vaccine hesitancy and why is it higher amongst black, Asian and minority ethnic communities? Well, very simply put, it's people being uncertain about either the vaccine itself or the effect of the vaccine on their bodies and the disease that it's trying to fight. In terms of why it's more of a problem or an issue amongst uh, non-white communities. It's quite complex, but it's also helpful to understand some of the context, actually. If you look at Europe pre-COVID, some European countries actually were more vaccine hesitant than um, other parts of the developing world. Um, France, for instance, has had quite a lot of problems with um, convincing their population to take you know, the routine vaccinations And we've had problems as well in this country with uh, MMR, for instance. It's not just a problem or an issue that is affecting uh, minority communities. The issues that have come to the fore with the COVID uh, pandemic have been uh, very much around the lens of structural inequalities. So when we go to these communities and we say, this vaccine is important, it's going to help you save your lives and indeed your livelihoods, given the economic inequalities that are also experienced by these communities. A lot of them won't accept what you're saying at face value, um, because in the past they've experienced structural exclusion from the health system. So if you take a um, black woman, for instance, um, black women are more likely to die during childbirth Mm. than white women are. Um, And that's been the case for many years. It's not just COVID that's brought that to light. Um, and so it's is it surprising then that black women and black communities are 
hesitant or uncertain. Um, and then the same is true for other communities that are that you mentioned. So the Pakistani community, the Bengali community have experienced similar levels of structural exclusion from, from society and the system not being quite set up to cater for them. Compounding this, of course, is the difficulty that we've got with this um, anti-vax community. They have been exploiting that vulnerability that these communities have from not by, by that vacuum being there. But they're not being community uh, champions. They're not being um, materials in their languages or in their context. So it is a bit of a complex picture. But uh, the good thing is that we have started to see a lot of movement from the government, from uh, local authorities, from public health bodies, and from uh, clinical commissioners to actually start and uh, address this. And we are seeing, at least on the ground, a lot more people from a Black and Asian minority ethnic background coming forward and getting the vaccine. Yeah, as you see, the, the the reasons for the for the hesitancy they're they're quite complicated. They're quite multi layered, and I think you're you're absolutely right. Um, the sort of historical that mistrust that a lot of you know black and and Asian communities have in not just the NHS but lots of bigger institutions as well is definitely um, a, a factor. I mean, I was quite struck that um, there's a lot of attention focused on this. Lots of um, ethnic minority activists and celebrities like Adil Ray and Mira Sayel, who all took to social media to um, encourage people to take up the vaccine. We've been seeing ethnic minority um, doctors, um, you know, vlogging their vaccinations on on TikTok um, in, in Urdu. Why is this important? And more importantly, is it effective? Will it move? move um, the needle to get the needle into people's arms. So just on on the point of getting celebrities involved, I think it's really if it's really helpful to see um, people in the public eye talking about uh, you know the vaccine and addressing some of those issues. And and there's definitely a social capital that is gained with that. It creates a conversation. It it, it opens up uh, parts of uh, it opens up conversation really in families and in communities. So that is incredibly helpful. But what um, some of the research suggests is that actually it may not be as helpful or sometimes may be perceived as a tick box or as uh, people that don't really represent me. So Adil Ray is, is a wonderful comedian, but does he speak to every Pakistani? Um, does um, you know Marcus Fashford, a very successful young footballer, speak to every young black man in, in Britain? And the answer is probably not. What we are seeing is a lot of response to local trusted individuals that can be um, people from uh, sort of faith traditions so imams priests rabbis and that has actually been quite effective because a lot of people take their direction from from that aspect of their identity and their lives but then there are also other people that are not part of a religious community but they have other influential voices not just in the uk but also abroad and that's another thing that local communities have been doing, given the sort of media that these communities consume. So the Polish community, for example, they don't, may not necessarily watch, uh, and I'm stereotyping here, of course, but the people that are underserved find it difficult to yeah. uh, consume the media and the messages that are coming out from the governments and public health authorities, may find that actually if we engage with a Polish channel based in Poland, they may be actually uh, better informed if we go through that lens. So in terms of its effectiveness, it's difficult to to give a straight answer to that because we haven't actually done a great deal of research 
into this in in the way that we have perhaps researched other areas and that in and itself is a an issue um historically you know we haven't really prioritized research into ethnic minorities and uh, particularly into looking at how we can capture and make best use of community assets like places of worship like community champions and and another thing that's sort of compounding all this is data we've only recently started collecting very granular real-time data around which ethnicities are getting the vaccine. Um, so we're in a much better position now than when we were in December when we started. And in terms of that um, early granular data that you've seen, what, what are you picking up in terms of which groups are coming forward and which groups aren't? So um, age is an important factor here. So we're seeing that the elderly community, which are more at risk, they have been the most enthusiastic to get the vaccine done partly because they have probably been the ones that have been most affected by lockdown in that they themselves or their loved ones are um, hesitant to let them go out and, and engage with society. So there's a lot of enthusiasm from them. And, and we, we saw a lot of people, you know, very keen to come in. I, you know, I've seen patients that were crying and that was the first time that they'd been out since March 2020. Um, you know, they, they didn't even go out during the summer because they weren't sure. Um the younger cohorts, as we're coming into um, those people who have got long-term health conditions but are younger, there is a little bit of issues there still because of um, perhaps there is some complacency that they don't see COVID affecting them. In terms of ethnicity, what we are hearing from uh, colleagues in um, public health and in NHS uh, England is that we are seeing improvements and data that I have heard of is suggesting that in non-white groups, we are seeing uh, positive uh, indicators that we are seeing greater uptake uh, in recent weeks than previous weeks. Okay. Well, I mean, and you're also right about the um, the campaign. It is a really good campaign and um, it's great to see people come together. I was also struck as well, uh, a lot of parliamentarians from all sides of the House, Labour and Conservative. What was interesting is to see, you know, um, Black and Asian MPs from Labour and the Conservative Party coming together to get the the message out, you know, people who are normally sort of at each other's throats, but saying, look, let's come together. But you're right. I think the the sort of lazy way to do this for a lot of politicians, and I myself have been on the other side of politics, is because they don't really understand ethnic minority communities and just the term B-A-M-E, it's just like lumping everybody together and yeah. think everybody will watch the one show or the BBC or and then that will be like job done. And, and the other thing that I'm interested in is how is take up amongst black and Asian and minority ethnic um, people who work in the NHS, is that a, a high take up or is there hesitancy amongst NHS workers from, from those communities as well? There is uncertainty in, in, in the workforce as well, no doubt about it. And, and I think that just reflects the fact that um, we're not divorced from our communities, you know, and that in itself speaks to um, a bit of a paradox, isn't it? You'd expect people who work in the health and social care community and they've seen the sharp end of COVID that you would then still find it uh, unappealing to take the vaccine. And I think that, you know, unpicking that is is also quite important. And when you speak to um, people in that space, it, 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 it again, the same issues are there. So it's, just, it's the um, fact that a lot of this workforce has been uh, struggling to have its voice heard. There's uh, an important piece of work called the Workforce Race Equality Standards, 
that was set up in, in England by the NHS, looking at the amount, uh, the proportion of non-white leadership in the NHS uh, to compared to the number of staff that work for that institution. And consistently, you're not seeing non-white people promoted beyond a certain level. There appears to be a glass ceiling. Um, and um, and that's been the case for many years, and there's been lots of movements to try and get that fixed, but we're still not seeing that representation of that workforce and all of the richness that comes from the different uh, blend of identities and, and, and ethnicities and all that, all that intersectionality that exists yeah. being represented in a management and a board level in these institutions. Um, and so, you know, you compound that with other reports of bullying and harassment being reported amongst uh, BAME staff members. Um, uh, and it kind of, you know, one of the reasons might be, and, and, and again, this is something that we do need more data and more research. But one of the um, reasons might be that these staff members, again, just don't trust what their matrons, their uh, clinical directors, their chief executives are telling them to do because they feel um, they don't feel uh, that they feel disenfranchised from from their employer. Yeah. Uh, and then well, that's it, compounded with the, the government aspects as well. Well, it, it feeds back into what we began our conversation talking about, which was a lot of mistrust that um, black and Asian and minority ethnic people often have in health institutions and indeed, you know, governmental institutions. And, you know, in a post Windrush um, era, you can completely understand why that mistrust is there. That representation is so important. And, and tell me, Salman, what about your own experiences, um, you know, as a, as a Muslim man um, in the health service? You know, have you experienced discrimination or, or out and out right racism? Um, so I've been very fortunate. You, you pointed out the fact that I'm a man. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I have male privilege. I'm, I'm quite conscious of that. Um, so, I, I mean, there has been low grade stuff for me and sort of, you know, people wash it off as banter and then you perhaps look back and you think, well, perhaps maybe it wasn't. There was one incident quite recently, actually. Um, we've, we've just had a, a baby boy recently. Um, oh, congratulations. And, um, thank you. Um, and just after he was born, I was alone with him. Uh, my wife had to be elsewhere. and um, one of the, the, the colleagues, uh, one of the nurses, excuse me, came in. And the first thing she said to me was, do you speak English? Um, oh. and, and I was like, pardon, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure what you mean by that. Um, and she said, oh, you never know these days. And then she, you know, she, she was very matter of fact about it. And, and then I kind of, um, you know, I was a bit sleep deprived and just sort of said, whatever. But um, this is me as someone who is, 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 is a fairly well-established clinician, uh, you know, middle class, and, and I'm still getting this stuff. And, and these sort of microaggressions and micro-compromises, you know, they're not, you know, you speak to anyone, uh, people who, who are disabled, people who are, you know, to women, of course, and pr people who are pregnant, uh, LGBTQI communities, you know, everyone will, will talk about this. It is a difficult um, conversation to have because it does create a little bit of tension between you and the people that you're trying to, to, to engage with. But it's an important one. Um, and, and I think COVID has shown us that, you know, if we don't address these issues, uh, this elephant in the room as a society, it is a fracture that can lead to quite a devastating break in society. Um, and, and I think it is important for us to also mention that we, we kind of talk about all these inequalities, forgetting that actually the biggest killer in COVID is economic deprivation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it happens to be that the 
minority communities are more poor and people who are just about managing and they're carers and they've got learning disabilities. You know, I think that that is somewhat lost in all this. And we're just about managing to talk about ethnicity, um, but we're not talking about poverty. And I think that is something that we do need to bring back to the table, um, because if we don't, we're going to miss a huge opportunity to try and build back not only better, but also build back fairer, because I yeah. think that is something that we have to get right. Otherwise, we're just going to be in the same problem, but with another disease. And we're not going to be anywhere different, um, you know, in, in, in the next 10 years. What I really noticed with the sort of narrative around um, Black and Asian and minority ethnic people, at first there was almost a almost like a hope or a desire that there was some sort of uh, biological or genetic thing. You know, I remember having discussions with people probably more to the right of politics than me. And, and they were saying, I think it's something to do with vitamin D and it's something to do with, di- something to do with diabetes because South Asian people have diabetes. And so this has got to be something to do with diabetes. And uh, uh, almost, almost hoping it was something to do with diabetes. And now, as you say, when you join up the dots, it's things like overcrowded housing. It's the kinds of employment, um, which mean that Black and Asian people are more exposed to the virus, whether it was, you know, public transport or working in shops or carers or frontline NHS staff, all of those kind of things. But how do you, how do you think we should move the conversation on to properly address those those things, to join up those dots in society and have those difficult conversations? I think, you know, it's a very important point that you made. So diabetes, cardiovascular disease um, in particular, you know, we kind of, it's, it's almost become um, a shorthand thing for saying that, you know, this person is from a, a non-white background. It's important that we recognise that for a lot of people, these diseases are socially patterned. It's because we've got an economic system that uh, doesn't allow people to eat healthily, doesn't allow people to live in a way where they're not under constant stress, which causes their body to produce too much stress hormones, which causes you to put on weight. You know, that sort of complex sort of situation causes you to have more mental health problems, which means that you have problems accessing the uh, employment sector, et cetera, et cetera. We have to start investing in, you know, uh, prevention and education and all these boring things. But yeah. actually, these are the things that end up yielding the greatest uh, benefit for society. All the things that we've done in COVID, or recently at least, have started to do in COVID, which is to reach out to communities, to co-produce, to recognise that we don't have all the answers. We have to let go of a bit of the central command and control and give that to, you know, um, to local people who are trusted and have the best interests of their community at, at heart. Uh, you know, big society. <laughs> um, oh, that's but, a phrase I haven't uh, heard for a while. <laughs> um, it, you know, it, it does yield benefits. Um, I'm not suggesting that's a panacea, but that approach is something that we have struggled or been reluctant to to, to engage with. And certainly from, you know, from speaking uh, as a Muslim person as well, faith and, and the role of faith and, and um, places of worship uh, has some, been something that we've found difficult to discuss as a country. Um, uh, and for many years, <laughs> this isn't anything recent. This is since the Enlightenment, of course. But it's um, it, it's something that we have to recognise that it is a huge part of people's identity as well. And the involvement of chaplains and uh, people uh, in in the sort of spiritual care setting has been in fundamental, given the moral and spiritual injury that uh, we have suffered, not as a nation 
but also people as uh, you know on the front line as well. So that you know that conversation hopefully will start developing in a mature and in a in a productive way as well. But it has to be you know led in a in a framework that is about building back fairer. Yeah, and it would be such a a lost opportunity if this was not a teachable moment in terms of moving society onwards. Now you you mentioned the importance um, of faith. Um, you yourself are from a Muslim background, as as am I. How did you feel um, when Eid was cancelled very suddenly, whereas Christmas was treated more carefully and more sensitively and was much more at the centre of a national conversation? Yeah, I think there's, there's, there is very little doubt that the Christmas bubble policy was something that has led to um, the situation that we're in. Of course, you know, it's not just Eid, uh, Passover, Vasaki, um, Easter. Lots of other traditions have also, uh, and, and celebrations have also been affected. Certainly on the Eid front, um, it was it was very, uh, I think a lot of people were hurt by that. Um, and again, I don't think anyone would have been too upset had it been um, a decision that was given with adequate notice um, but it was literally on Christmas Eve, but it was on Eid Eve. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that that exists. But that, that, that decision was made. And I think that's what hurt the most, not the fact that Eid was cancelled. I think people would have understood that, you know, rates were rising, that this is, is this is not wise. You know, mosques for the first time, um, I think, ever in Islamic history have, you know, coordinated a closure across the world in, in response to something like this for this sort of length of time. So it's not that the community... And faith leaders were being lemmings and, and just wanting to go ahead and celebrate without any cause for concern for what might happen. If anything, actually, the Muslim community and indeed many other minority communities have been incredibly resilient and proactive. So I think there is a, there has been a lot of hurt. And I think there is this perception that, uh, you know, uh, some communities only matter when there are a problem um, rather than there being a sort of equal partnership. And yeah, I think I think that is something that, you know, a lot of people have had a bit of a bitter taste in their mouth about. Mm. Now, I just want to um, just a f- few final questions that I want to um, put to you. Uh, one of the concerns that um, some of the uh, community had, particularly Muslim community, was that there was rumours um, that the uh, Pfizer vaccine was not halal, that it could have contained gelatin. Um, or or alcohol. Um, wh- what did you and your organisation do to to help clarify that and, and debunk that myth? So I think the issue about whether something is halal or not is is a discussion or a decision for uh, Islamic scholars, people who've studied um, you know the Islamic sciences and are unable to make that decision. So what we went away and did was looked at the vaccines themselves and their ingredients and put that information forward to these bodies to make those decisions. And the Pfizer vaccine, for instance, has got no uh, products in there that are of concern to Islamic scholars. The AstraZeneca vaccine does have a very small amount of alcohol, but it's no more than a slightly aged banana that's gone and undergone a little bit of fermentation or orange juice. If you leave it out for a couple of days, it starts to ferment and there's a very trace amount of alcohol in there. Um, so the issue was, I guess, more around the, the genesis of vaccines so, so um, and the production of vaccines and whether or not, for example, the, um, the genetic modification that is used uh, and is used in many other 
medicines and not just vaccines, but also put it in the context of the public health issue that Muslim communities are facing, given the fact that we knew that uh, the Muslim community in Britain had been disproportionately affected in terms of lives and livelihoods, um, and the fact that uh, we also had a particular way of going about doing things, whether it's uh, social gatherings with Ramadan and, and Friday prayers, for instance. So we put that all together and, and, and put that out there in position statements and, and, and started engaging with the uh, Islamic institutions, um, the Muslim Council of Britain and other mosques and other influential Muslim uh, faith leaders. And, and now with Ramadan coming up, we're doing a similar thing to try and reassure Muslim communities that, you know, even during Ramadan, taking a vaccine, it doesn't break your fast. And, and that's the opinion of Muslim scholars um, and that people shouldn't delay getting it on the account of Ramadan. Mm, that's really interesting, really interesting. And then final um, question, as you keep tracking um, the data that comes in, looking at different age groups and uh, different ethnicities, may there come a point where um, door-to-door vaccinations in deprived areas um, where there are high concentrations of particular um, minority groups who are, are, are slow at coming forward, do you think that's something that the government should consider? I think nothing should be left off the table. Um, and, and this might be one of them. And, you know, we're also seeing pop-up centres come up in, in uh, places of worship, for instance. You know, why not have a pop-up uh, um, centre that comes up in another area where people congregate or, you know, a supermarket, for example, where there is a particular issue of low uptake. Um, and again, it's, it's important to remember that the low uptake isn't only going to be in, in the AME communities. It's also amongst... Um, other white communities as well. So for the traveller community, for example, um, you know, they've, they've had to, issues with vaccine uptake as well. Um, you know, I recently just spoke to a very affluent middle-class lady who is also very vaccine reluctant because she's not convinced about the data. So yeah, you know, going around and, and getting vaccines in, in a bus. We've seen that happen in Crawley, actually, in London. And there's been a bus that's been driving around to homeless shelters and places of worship to uh, give vaccines to people who... Um, uh, may find it difficult to get them. There's a vaxi taxi in uh, in Harrow, I think, uh, which is a, a retrofitted black cab. Oh, I love that, the vaxi taxi. <laughs> or maybe the jab cab. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we should trademark that one. But, um, yeah, so there's some, there's some really cool and innovative things that are happening. And I must stress, actually, that these innovations have come from the NHS, from within GP practices and from people working in the health service who have the answers. Um, and that innovation isn't something that we've necessarily seen from uh, places where we've had to outsource to uh, non-NHS bodies, for instance, to the uh, test and trace uh, situation and the laboratory situation, uh, which I think is a, a separate conversation in and of itself. But I think it's important we pay testament to the creativity and the huge work that GPs and primary care uh, colleagues have put to make sure that you know they, they do get all of their communities vaccinated. Yeah, who knew that actually the NHS was quite good at doing this kind of stuff and not outsourcing it was um, was the way forward. Listen, it's been such a pleasure to to have you on the show. Final question, M. Salman, what are you most looking forward to um, doing when some kind of normality can resume? Uh, so I'd love for my son to actually meet his aunt. He's not actually done that yet. So um, so yeah, I'd love to the family to get together. I think that is that is something I think a lot of us have have missed and and taken for granted. So yeah, just a hug will do, I think. (laughs) Um, So yeah, here's hoping. 
he is hoping um, that well that's a, that's a lovely way to to end this um dr salman wakar a practicing gp and general secretary of the british islamic medical association thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me on the bunker thank you Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Friday with Start Your Week on Mondays and the main panel show on Tuesdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Aisha Hazarika and the producer was Andrew Harrison. Assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronovic, and audio production was from me, Robin Lieber. The Bunker theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson, and the Bunker Daily is a Bob Masters production.